that before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is God's word. Mike, can you do me a favor and actually put the adoration scripture up there, since I forgot to do it? See, when they only let you drive the car a couple times every two years, you forget how to do it. So the adoration scripture was supposed to be Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and Romans 3, 21 through 26. So I'm going to read those, and that should kind of set the table a little bit better for what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And Romans 3, 21 through 26 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that should adequately set the table for what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, It's interesting to come back into the book of Galatians because I start to realize just how complex some of the issues the church and the churches in Galatia Galatia are dealing with here. And there's a lot of stuff happening. And what I'm going to try and do tonight is kind of recap where we have been over the beginning of the year and into the summer series and then get us kind of caught up with where we should be when we come back and and teach the rest of the series through the rest of the year up until we get to Christmas time. So we picked the book of Galatians because we thought that the churches in Galatia were going through similar things that our church and a lot of churches in Tucson and churches in America are kind of going through at this point in time, having gone through a crazy election, having gone through and still are going through a pandemic and going through all kinds of turmoil and issues. One of the things that we notice about the churches in Galatia is that they too are going through a lot of turmoil. They have attacks happening from within the church, people that are trying to pull them away from the clear teaching of the gospel and put them under old traditions and practices of the law. We see dissent between leaders and people in the church, and we have people calling each other out, Paul and Peter going after each other, if you remember that. And we have Paul really making his case for why the law is not the justifier of us, but it's really Jesus and Jesus' actions on the cross. So what I'm going to do is just kind of read us through Galatians 3, 
23 through 26, verse by verse in a way, and then talk about the things that we see happening here and bring it back to the first um, beginning portions of Galatians so we can understand what's happening there as well. So Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So it's in this captivity that the Galatian church wanted to return to, which was basically the old traditions and ways of the law, because there were people within the church that were leading them in this direction. And Paul speaks of this in the first chapter of Galatians, in verses 6 through 7, when he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So we have to take this back a little bit and go back to the book of Acts, where we have Peter. And Peter has this vision from God where he was told that he could now eat animals that would have otherwise been unclean under the law, right? We've talked about this in the past. Um, why was he doing this? Why was he allowed to? Well, it was because Gentiles were now able to be part of the family of God, whereas in the past, they didn't really have access because of the way things had been under the law. And so now things are different. And Peter, after having this vision and being told that he is now allowed to eat things that were thought to be unclean, goes and he meets up with Cornelius and he sees the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. Awesome. Very cool. And this kind of sets us up for where we are now, where we have Peter, who's eating with the Gentiles, kind of acting like a Gentile, and he starts to go back, and he starts to go in the direction that's not good, right? So these people come in, they're from the circumcision party. That's the only time I'm going to say that, John. They're from the circumcision party, and, oh man, they did. And... (laughs) They believe that in order to be justified before God, you had to follow the law, right? Um, And Peter, who had this vision from God, who was personally touched by God and told that he could eat all of these different things, goes back and, and, and kind of falls under the social pressure that is given to him. He separates himself from Gentile believers and starts eating with people who follow the law. And really what happens here is it kind of puts a rift in the church. And that's what's really got Paul upset. He's like, I don't understand why you're causing division. Peter wants to be in good standing with these people rather than being in good standing with the clear teaching of the gospel. And that's what has Paul mad. So in in, in Galatians 1, verse 10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would be a servant of Christ. And in chapter 2, verses 14, Paul publicly calls out Peter for that sin. He says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? See, Peter's doing all of these things that he didn't once do, but now he's trying to put that on other people. That doesn't square with what Paul is wanting out of Peter, and it doesn't square with what the gospel has called him to now. 
People there are teaching a distorted gospel, one that's different from the one that was delivered to him, one that was different that was delivered to the apostles. And it's driving a wedge between the churches in Galatia and causing certain people, especially the Gentiles, to feel like they don't belong. And and Paul is not happy about that. And even though there's only one gospel, anything that departs from that one gospel should be rejected. And anything that divides the church rather than unites it should be rejected as well. So we have to ask ourselves in the 21st century context, what in our communities is not in step with the truth of the gospel and something that only seeks to divide us? I mean, it's, it's, it's no secret that there's a lot of different gospels out there, even though, like Paul says, there's only one. There's a lot of false gospels floating around in the world, right? Um, one of those would be the prosperity gospel, the idea that God only wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And I think the interesting element of the prosperity gospel that's the worst is the fact that if you're not healthy and you're not wealthy and bad things happen to you, they would say, well, you got something wrong with your, your life, right? You're, you're in sin or you're lacking in faith. And then that totally pushes you back onto working your way to God and trying to figure out what that is that's in the way of you having money. It also ignores the fact that God sent his son to be a poor person (laughs) and to die on a cross and be inflicted with pain. All of those things kind of contradict a little bit um, of what we hear in the Bible. Then there's the social gospel which is kind of like the opposite of the prosperity gospel and focuses really on material realities. Contra to the prosperity gospel, it glorifies poverty in a way, and it often ignores the orthodox teaching of Christianity and instead focuses on the here and the now. Then there's those people who stand on the street corner downtown and yell at the sinners, and they claim that they don't have sin in their life, and they're lying. And and I'm not even really sure what to call that gospel. I just know that it's not real. And then if you've been to the U of A, there's the God, the mother people walking around out there. And the list goes on and on and on. But if there was one version or one distorted gospel that I think afflicts us as a church and kind of our church communities that we roll with more than anyone, I would call it the political gospel. And so in March of this year, there was a Gallup poll that made a lot of headlines, especially for like nerdy people who like to look at polls. Um, That would be me. Um, That said, since the turn of the century, so over the past 20 years, in America, the number of people who are affiliated with a church or a synagogue has gone from 70% to 50%. So America is becoming far less religious And the number of people going to church has fallen dramatically. Yet the interesting thing is that religious fervor continues to rise. If anything, people are more ardent about the things that they worship that aren't God. And there was an Atlantic article that came out that was titled America Without God by this guy, Shadi Hamid. And he says, If secularists had hoped that declining religiosity would make for more rational politics, drained of faith's inflaming passions, they are likely disappointed. 
As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened ideological intensity and fragmentation has risen, American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. So we've seen this in our church and in our church circles, and it's kind of unfortunate, actually. Unless you think it's only one side of the political aisle that engages in this sort of thing, it's not. Both the right and the left are looking for politics to be their saviors, often at the expense of deep and abiding relationships that could otherwise serve to glorify God. And that, I think, is the biggest tragedy of this. The political gospel, or what I'm calling the political gospel, like most of these other gospels, isn't necessarily something that's new. Back in Jesus' day, people thought that Jesus was going to be someone who would overtake the Roman Empire, and they looked for him to be a political figure, but he wasn't. And in our modern context, the political gospel often divides the church by asking people to find their identity in something other than Christ. It doesn't ask you to lay down the proverbial swords that we wield. It actually asks you to pick them up and use them on the internet or in your everyday life in conversation with people. And it asks you to find people that you like and don't like and run away from those you don't like and hang out with the ones you do. Now, one thing I'm not saying is that caring about policies that have material impact on people's lives is bad. No, that's not bad at all. It's a good thing to care about the politics and the policies of the day and want to see positive outcomes. Totally good. Not saying that having an opinion of your own and like actually caring about that opinion is even bad. That's a good thing too. And I'm not even saying that disagreement is necessarily even a bad thing. That can be good too. It can often lead to people sharpening each other up, not necessarily getting along is not a bad thing. It's simply when we say that my particular political way or my particular thoughts on certain things are the only way, and I'm not going to be with you, or I'm not going to hang out with you, or I don't like you, or even worse, I hate you, or I think that you're less than me, that's when you kind of need to start thinking about why you're doing these things. That's when you really need to search deep in your heart and see what it is that has brought you to that place, because those people that you disagree with so much so that you hate them, Jesus went to the cross for those people too. And Jesus has a desire to see those people know him deeper too. And especially if that person is a brother and a sister in Christ, it's, it's very troubling when we decide that we're not going to get along with each other over relatively stupid things. And the saddest part about it is that when people look into the church and they see all of that division and they see the wedges that are brought into the church by these issues, it doesn't cause people to look into the church and go, oh, how is it that these people are together and they love Jesus together? It actually asks people to say the opposite. Why, if they can't get along in there, why would I be a part of it? 
See, the one true gospel is going to challenge whatever tries to stand up to it. And the one true gospel wants to change your life, and it wants to bring you in and make you different and make you new, and if you let it, it will. But um, if you give in to the things that want to take you away from it, it's not necessarily always going to, to do that. So in verse 24, Paul says this, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. One of the things that we see in verse 24 is that the law is actually a good thing. It had a purpose, but the law was always lacking in its ability to do certain things. It could never justify people, and it could only cover sin temporarily. It could never really justify an individual before God. Jesus doesn't have anything really bad to say about the law. He only speaks disparagingly when it comes to people who use the law incorrectly, like the Pharisees. And in the case of the Galatian church, Paul speaks disparagingly of people who want to bring the church back underneath the law and take away the freedom that's been afforded in Christ. These people are kind of not unlike the Pharisees that Jesus contends with. So in Matthew 23, 1-7, Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, So do and observe whatever they tell you. So you see Jesus is saying that the law there is worth doing to these people. This is obviously prior to the new covenant. But he continues, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens and hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So Jesus has contempt for people who claim to enforce the law to a T, yet neglect other people who follow the law to be seen by others. See, the law itself is held in high esteem by Jesus, but the people who misuse it, those people aren't. And for Paul, who was a Pharisee, who would probably have been so well acquainted with that sin in particular, to see any people in the church go back to that, to see people go back to the chains of the law would have been devastating to him. And that's why he's so adamant about not doing that. Especially after he's come to understand how much freedom he has in Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, Paul says, "'We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners.'" Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And in Romans 3.20, Paul reiterates, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what is the job of the law? The job of the law is to show us the areas in which we've fallen short, to bring to bear the knowledge of our sin, and to point to faith in Jesus Christ as the ultimate way to conquer that sin. The way that I kind of like to look at it is if the law was a flashlight. And if you've ever been caving or in a dark cave, you'll know that if you turn off a light, there's, you just can't see anything. Have you ever been 
uh, to pepper sauce. I've, I went there once. I don't want to go back because I'm kind of claustrophobic. Um, but I went there once, and I turned off the flashlight when we were, all, we were all in there, and it was kind of alarming how dark it was. But when you turn it back on, you can see where you are. Now, if you imagine a cave where there is a pit that you could fall into, that flashlight, it can't actually save you from that pit. It can show you it, you can see it, you can see, hey, there it is, but the flashlight can't prevent you from walking into it voluntarily. The flashlight isn't going to magically be a bridge that will help you walk across a pit or a cavern or something that you could fall into and die. The flashlight can merely show you this. And like the law, this flashlight has one goal, and it's just to show you what's in front of you. It doesn't have the ability to actually save you from the pit. And in the analogy, the pit would be your sin. But Jesus, unlike the flashlight, has the ability to save you. He becomes that bridge that takes you from one thing to another and moves you along. So So the law has one goal and one thing that it does, but it's limited in scope and limited in power. Jesus is different from the law in that Jesus compels us to follow him. The law compels us to do better and to try harder, but Jesus calls us to follow him And in following him, our desire for him increases and our desire for sin decreases. The law can't necessarily do that. It can compel you to do and compel you to try, but it can't actually cover the sin. And the more our relationship with Jesus grows, the more our desire for sin goes away. Will it be instant? No. You're going to struggle with sin your entire life. As we like to say here, we're broken people given grace, right? Now, that's not some sort of permission structure to do sin. But it does mean that you're going to be sanctified, that you're going to be made new, and that is an interesting and rough process. See, the thing is, is that your role, your position, your place has been altered, and it's imperative that you understand that especially if you want to live out of the freedom that Christ affords you. You have to understand that we're not justified by our works, but by Jesus' work alone on the cross that leads to grace that God has to offer us. And this is where Peter and the others in this church, Barnabas too, were, were getting it wrong. And for Paul, this made a mockery of the true gospel that justifies us through Christ alone. And it made a mockery of the death of Christ on the cross. And and this is where we can get it wrong when we put our faith in things other than the gospel of Jesus, right? Especially in our own abilities. You and your own abilities, you don't have the ability to do it. Only Jesus did. In Galatians 2, 19 through 21, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's a very popular verse. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, if we look for righteousness through the law or through our works, we make a mockery 
of the crucifixion. And we kind of are saying that Jesus died for nothing if we think we can do it on our own, when we can't. Now we read Galatians 3, 25 to 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So there's a distinct interconnective tissue that is involved in all of these verses that we've been talking about tonight. And it's not the law, and it's not justification, but it's faith. Faith is so important. That's why I read those verses as the adoration verses, because they were so focused on faith. Paul says in Galatians 3, 10 to 12, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, that no one is justified before God by the law. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So a couple of things that we see here. First, those who live by the law and those who live by the works of the law and do not abide in the law are under a curse and can't be justified by the law. Like we said earlier, the law can do nothing to justify you. It can only point out your sin to you. And second, the righteous are called to live by faith not the law. So we also see a kind of distinct past and a distinct present in in Paul's argument. See, there was a time before faith that he's talking about, a time before faith had arrived and the new covenant had arrived in which faith had no ability to be placed on Jesus because Jesus hadn't hadn't come yet. And the example Paul uses is Abraham. He um, uses Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham and his offspring that it would bless the nations, and it would include the Gentiles. And Abraham put his faith in God and believed in the promise of God. And prior to the Mosaic Law's existence, this all happened. And that promise and that faith that Abraham had was accounted to him as righteousness. And since Jesus came in and now justifies us through his work on the cross— we, like Abraham, are able to put our faith in the now fulfilled promise of God, and Jesus' righteousness will be given to us, allowing us to be called sons and daughters of God through faith. So under the new covenant, we enjoy freedom that Abraham didn't. We now enjoy freedom that those under the Mosaic law couldn't enjoy. And Paul equates the law in these verses with the guardian. That's what it's, it says in the ESV, where it says we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now, I kind of don't necessarily like that the most because what Paul's really trying to say is that the law was like a tutor or a teacher that would lead you to Christ. And if you're willing to see it, you will see it. The uh, message, you ever read the message? I don't know. Every now and then I do. Every now and then when I need like a simpler translation, I'll read it. So don't judge for this. The, it says, The law was like those Greek tutors with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger and distraction, making sure 
the children will really get to the place they're set out for. That's interesting. So the law had a really distinct purpose. The law was to lead people under its tutelage to Jesus. That's what Paul's argument is. He says in Galatians 3, 21 to 22, which brings us to these verses, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So let's read these verses again, 26 to 27. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What we see here is that our identity has now shifted. Now that faith has come, now that Jesus is here, and we have the ability to put our faith in Jesus, we have a new title, we have a new position through faith. We're considered sons and daughters of God through faith. Now, if you haven't noticed, identity is probably culturally one of the biggest touchstones that we have right now that our our society is grappling with. Identity is not intrinsically a bad thing. It's often a good thing. But when it becomes an idol for us, as I think it has in our culture, it becomes a bad thing. See, with the new identity that we've been given as a son and a daughter of God, we can't allow any other identity to come before that one. The identity that we have in Christ should supersede any other identity that we have. Our identity in Christ is different because it's been bestowed upon us, meaning that it's been given to us, and we have a responsibility not to make a mockery of the identity that we've been given, making any identity more important than our position as a child of God. And the temptation today is to do that, especially knowing that in different circles, for better or for worse, certain identities can give you more power or give you more prestige, right? Or more status. For Jesus, and this is a place where we really get the opportunity to emulate Jesus, for Jesus... His identity as the Son of God came first. It's what drove him in his ministry. It's what sent him to the cross to die an unjust death for our sins. His identity as the Son of God came first. It came before his identity as a Jew. It came before his identity as a man, before his identity as a poor carpenter from Nazareth. His religion, his ethnicity, his gender, his class... His occupation, where he came from, were nothing compared to being the Son of God. Were all of those things made him who he was? Yeah, they were. Did they come before his identity as the Son of God? No. So we're now called to be sons and daughters of God, adopted into the family of God, and that identity should come first. Does that mean that All other identities fall by the wayside and lose meaning? No. But does it mean that those identities cannot be of ultimate importance in our life? Yes. See, in in our neighborhood, we're about to, and you probably have noticed it if you're driving around town, all the trash on the side of the road. 
In our neighborhood, we're about to go through brush and bulky. And so, I don't know if you guys know this, but Andy and I live like five houses down from each other in the same neighborhood. And um, when it comes to brush and bulky, see, Andy's not here, so I'm going to pick on him a little bit. When it comes to brush and bulky, Andy is weak. (laughs) See, Andy likes to look through stuff, trash, and find stuff, okay? This is true. Just go look at all the chairs that we have in the back room over there. Um, No, just kidding. No, it is true. Andy is okay with doing that stuff. Me, I look at a pile of trash, and I see a pile of trash. Andy looks at a pile of trash and sees mostly treasure. It's only a matter of what he can't take home that prevents him from keeping things. (laughs) It's totally true. But uh, it's that time of year again. Well, it's twice a year, but it's that time of year for, for our neighborhood. And when I think about that, I think it's interesting because Andy sees trash. He'll walk by something and be like, oh, there's a piece of wood. I can use that in this project. There's an old light fixture. I could put that up there and use it. And he finds things and gives them new identity and new meaning. He gives them a new home. And I usually don't like to think of myself as a piece of trash. (laughs) But for this analogy, I am. And so are you. So here we go. Just kidding. No. um, But really, when Jesus saw you before he, he called you to know you, basically, spiritually, that's what you were. And Jesus called you and made him his own, kind of like Andy does with all the stuff that he finds. He called you, he made, him, he made you his own, and he wanted to know you. He wanted to be in a relationship with you. And he gives you a new identity. And that shouldn't be something that you fall away from. or That shouldn't be something that you run away from. It's something that you should love and adore. You're now a son or a daughter of God. And it's incredible. When he saw us in our spiritual trashy mess and decided that we were worth it to save us, he didn't see us as we were right then. He saw us for what he wanted us to be, which was a son and a daughter of him. There's nothing that you can't say to someone who does that for you. And there's nothing that you can't, or that you can do to remove yourself from that relationship because he chose you and he wants to be with you and he wants to have that deep and abiding love for you, the person that he gave the new identity to, the person that is his child. And as children of God, we get the pleasure of joining Jesus at the table, right? That's what we do every week when we come together and and worship him. We, we get to dine and we get to go to the table unencumbered by our sin because Jesus took that sin on himself and justified us, right? Before we do communion, we are going to do confession. And for confession, I think the important thing to think about would be your changed identity, who you are in God. Like, that is so awesome, We don't always think of it that way, I guess. But a lot of times we kind of try to crawl back out on the the curb and and be trash again. When we we, uh, run back to 
the thing that God doesn't want us to be, which is our sin. And so think about the new identity that God has given you and think about the ways that maybe you do that. Tell God about them and, and he'll, come, he'll um, be faithful to forgive you of that. And then as you come up and take the bread, think about how he's changed you and think about how happy you are that he has and don't be burdened by all of that stuff because you don't have to. He justified you. He made you new. No need to be burdened by that. So I'm going to pray for us. We'll do communion and uh, confession, and we're done. So, Heavenly Father, God, um, thank you so much for tonight, for the ability to come and learn about you. Lord, thank you for justifying us, God. Jesus, thank you so much for going to the cross and being the one who gives us new life, who loves us and cares for us and wants to, to be there for us. Thank you for giving us a new identity. Thank you for taking us from something that was gross and making us new. Um, we're so thankful for that. God, we come before you and we just confess our sin to you, the ways in which we turn away from you, the ways in which we put other things first, the ways in which we often get sucked into the um, things of today and are not focused in on you. We confess all of those things to you, Lord. We confess as a church that we put ourselves first and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to not do that. Um, we just confess to you, God, that we are not always together and that's okay. So forgive us of our sin, Lord, and be with us as we speak to you uh, personally now.